0: Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark. uh, And I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Ken Aletta, uh, who is uh, he's been contributing to The New Yorker since 1977 uh, and launched the Annals of Communication, his series of stories on the way media and culture and news and politics all intersect uh, in 1992. He's the author of 13 books uh, and of some of my all time favorite pieces in one of my all time favorite magazines, uh, the 2014 profile of. Theranos' elizabeth holmes 2006 piece on anthony pelicano uh, scandal and the effects that it had on the powerhouse la hollywood lawyer bertram fields and of course uh, his 2002 profile of harvey weinstein and uh, he is on the show to, today to talk about his new book about harvey weinstein hollywood ending harvey weinstein and the culture of silence very glad to have him on uh, mr aletta thank you for being here today my pleasure Um, So I want to expand on the subhead of your book very briefly here, because there's a there's an interesting passage that kind of really gets to the theme, right? Here it is. Quote, if you were an actor, director or screenwriter with Oscar dreams, Harvey was an especially important gatekeeper. His secrets also stayed secret because in the movie business, abnormal male sexual aggression was thought to be common, fit for private whispers, but not public shame. This was Hollywood's culture of silence, Uh, end quote. Um, But that's kind of only half the story, really, right? I Like, how how did Hollywood's desire to keep its secrets dovetail with the trade and gossip press's desire to maintain access?
1: Well, clearly, one of the things that, and I quote some reporters, gossip columnists, is saying that, that they, they kept quiet about certain things. They saw drug use, for instance, some of the Merrimack screening parties afterwards and they kept silent because that was their ticket to come back to more screenings and, and get more invitations. Harvey had enormous power and one of the things my book tries to do is explore his power and how he used and both abused it as well. And and the the culture in Hollywood not unlike the culture in the Republican Party today with Donald Trump telling lies and just acquies- Republicans acquiescing and, and because they're afraid he's going to run, and get, run candidates against them in primaries. Or, or the blue shield in the police departments, which protect misbehaving cops. From, you don't want to feel like a rat, so you can form and keep your mouth shut. And, and Republicans keeping their mouth shut. And people in Hollywood who knew or should have known that Harvey was abusing women kept their mouths shut and allowed him for two, more than four decades to continually abuse women.
0: Let's talk about Harvey Weinstein's uh, rise, because I, I do think it's an, um, it's, it's an interesting uh, story here. I mean, here is a guy who is, a, he's seen as a genuine tastemaker, and I think rightly seen as a genuine tastemaker, arguably, you know, did as much to change the way And the the sort of movies that were made uh, since Robert Evans, you know, the producer of The Godfather or a beloved director like Steven Spielberg. How did his power as a tastemaker both ingratiate him into Hollywood and protect him from some of these criticisms?
1: Well, one of the things I mean, he as as you allude to, I mean, he made amazing and distributed amazing movies. Pulp Fiction, My Left Foot, Crying Game, uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape. One can go on and on. And, and you can't erase that legacy uh, of movies that he had a hand in and his talent. And, and my book tries to show his talent as well as his monstrosity. But if you're an actor or director or and you, and you have ambitions to really be associated with great movies and maybe win Academy Awards, um, someone who's making those kind of movies with someone you want to be associated with, as opposed to people who are doing these sequel movies, you know, killer bees and stuff like that. And so Harvey was a magnet for, for people who thought they were talented and had a shot at, at really, you know, a great career.
0: Yeah. And, and there's a, um, there's kind of a flip side to this coin, right? James Ivory, uh, you know, of the, the famed Merchant Ivory production team told David Carr back in 1994 or whatever, uh, you know, he's both a genius, quote, he's both a genius and an asshole. And unfortunately, those things okay. seem to go together, end quote. I mean, that is that is a, a common Hollywood thing, right? You hear about the, the monstrous uh, mean director, producer who is who is, you know, just kind of a jerk to everyone. But it's worth it because they make great movies.
1: No, no question, and uh, you know. But one, I mean, I, one of the things I try to do in the book is to look at the history of what's called the casting couch, which was Harvey's defense for himself. Mm-hmm. He said these were consensual affairs I was having with these women. It was it was traditional casting couch stuff that always took place in Hollywood over the many many decades. But there's a difference between casting couch and rape. Harvey was raping women. Mm-hmm. That's a criminal offense. Casting couches not, may not be uh, always yep. a, a criminal offense, but if you read the descriptions that I provide in the book and be, before me much more impactfully, uh, you know, than two New York Times reporters and Rona Farrow and the New Yorker, he was holding women down. He was violently accosting them. And and that's that was a criminal offense. One of the reasons he was convicted and sentenced to 23 years in prison in New York state.
0: Yeah. We'll get to the the New Yorker story in a minute because there's an interesting uh, connection you have to that. Um, uh, Before we do that, though, I want to talk a little bit about the way um, that Weinstein uh, was able to kind of connect politics and culture Uh, in your book. You highlight um, the way he had promoted my left foot right by having daniel day lewis appear before congress um and from there he became a genuine power broker in the democratic party right he's doing fundraisers for hillary clinton one of president obama's daughters has an internship at the weinstein company um the most i mean i like it's it's hard to i i i don't want to say this is funny but there is a darkly humorous moment in the uh in in his downfall where he says you know Uh, I've learned my lesson and I'm going to turn my anger on the NRA and Wayne LaPierre. I mean, how, how, to what extent was he connected by his political connections as, as all of this was going on, as people were, you know, whispering, but not really talking about what happened?
1: Harvey had, uh, you could argue he was deluded, but he believed he was, as he once proudly proclaimed, I'm the effing sheriff of this effing town. (laughs) And, and he thought he had enormous power and he can get the Clintons to come to the screenings. He could hire Obama's order He stayed at, you know, at, he was at Camp David. I mean, he was a major power broker in the Democratic, in Democratic politics. By the way, he also supported, he was a big supporter of Governor Ptack, the Republican governor of New York state, raised a lot of money for him as well. Michael Bloomberg, I mean, as, as mayor of New York. So Harvey thought of himself as a potentate, not just in the movie business, but in, in the and not just in, in politics, but in our culture, people gravitated. They wanted to be in his presence. He was Harvey. They knew him by his first name. And, and I think that went to his head. And he, he thought he'd get away with everything. And for many, many years, he did.
0: The the idea of uh, being there, there's a very, uh, again, kind of amusing story in your book where he's he's you know, saying that he he needs to have sit downs with prime ministers and there there's, you know, extending beyond the borders of America. I how how I mean, it's it is it is an almost amazing level of self delusion. I, I just I, I, I you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time around Hollywood people and who like knows lots of folks like this, even even then it is still kind of like, wow, I can't believe he thought he could do all this. Well, you
1: know, there's I tell a story in the book where he went to a wedding in Rome uh, of a former associate and it was very very hot and he was really uncomfortable. And he says to his assistant, "Get the pope on the line. I'll, I want to see if I can air condition this church." Well, get the, the the thought that you could get the pope on the line. I mean, it's quite unbelievable that he would he would have that level of self-delusion. And yeah. but
0: that's what he he thought he was Amaka. He thought he was a really big deal. Yeah. Um, And one of the ways, uh, again, this this kind of intertwining of politics and culture and all that, uh, you know, there there is uh, you have a series of of just numbers in in your book about the uh, advances he gave to journalists, politicians, um, you know, lawyers, to Essentially, buy them off, right? I mean, how was he using the Miramax book label to increase his power and his uh, his his control over the the people uh, in his in his world? He started Miramax books and he gave a number
1: of book contracts out. Mika and Joe and and Tim Russert and who was a bestseller for him, by the way. I mean, some of them really turned out well. But he was giving screenplay contracts to gossip columnists and and. He used he used his power as a as a studio head to give contracts for for films to to journalists and as well as inviting them to screenings and parties etc. And, and giving them exclusive interviews. But in addition to that, he created a publishing Merrimax books this publishing company and he was giving out book contracts. Some of them very lucrative contracts. To book gave three million dollars to Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. <laughs> which, which turned into zero, you know, David always got a million dollars His became his longtime attorney. So it was parceling out gifts. Now Miramax books actually had some success. But they also had a number of failures. But Harvey didn't see it as a failure. He was buying up using it to buy influence.
0: And this, uh, the, the, the Miramax books and the, uh, the magazine that he tried to start brings him into conflict, conflict with Disney, which he, you know, Disney has purchased Miramax at this point, And he is now kind of using Disney money to fund his empire building, his own personal empire building. What, what was the story there? And how did Disney feel, uh, how did Disney and in the form of Bob Iger and Michael Eisner feel about uh, Harvey Weinstein? They were enraged.
1: They had a contract with him. They, they acquired Miramax in 1993, but he couldn't spend more than 30 million dollars on a movie. And within a number of years, he was he was exceeding that limitation, uh, and just getting away with it, and would drive them nuts. In the in in terms of Talk Magazine, Tina Brown, who he recruited to edit from the New Yorker to edit Talk magazine, calls up Michael Eisner, who she knew, and said, Michael, I'm so glad we want to be working together. And Eisner said, working together? How? And he said, well, I'm, I'm editing your new magazine. And Eisner knew nothing about it. Harvey didn't tell him. And Eisner was doubly upset because Disney had sold magazines. They didn't believe it was a future growth industry. So suddenly, and, and he he calls up Harvey, and he, and he reads the riot actor Harvey. And he's very upset. He hangs up No no decision was made at that point. He's in Aspen and he has dinner with with Leonard Lauder, of Lauder company. And he tells Lauder the story and Lauder tells him, and I recount this in the book, Lauder tells him, you can't take on Harvey Weinstein, he's too powerful. You'll be criticized in the press for acting like like an obstreperous boss. And Eisen didn't take him on, but wanted to and failed to. And what does that tell you? It tells you in part, Harvey had power that even Disney, his parent company, was afraid of him.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's something else. Uh, it is really, really something else. Now, like as a as a uh, as a journalist, uh, the most interesting part of the book to me is your recounting of uh, reporting out the original profile of Weinstein that you wrote back in, uh, 2002, I think it's December of 2002. Um, and I, uh, I was, I mean, I was shocked to, to learn in this book that you actually had the names of some of the first women who signed NDAs, uh, with, with non-disclosure agreements, um, with Harvey Weinstein, uh, Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins. Um, I, I, can you recount for us, uh, A, the writing of that story, the reporting of that story, um, but also uh, h- how you track them down and the way you were almost able to get that information into the story and and the difficult call that was made to leave it out at, at the end of the day?
1: Well, it, I, I, a producer who I now
0: can identify, uh, she agreed,
1: who was Donna Gigliotti, who later won an Academy Award, and she was the... She was the uh, one of the producers on Shakespeare in Love, and during the making of that movie, uh, she learned that that these two women uh, were were that particularly Rowena Chu was abused by Harvey sexually, and and that Zelda Perkins, his then London assistant, came to Rowena's aid, and they wanted to bring charges. and And initially Donna helped them, brought gave them brought them to a lawyer, etc. I said Donna will you go public if, if I can get these women to talk? And she said, I might, but you have to get them to talk first. So I tracked Zelda down to Guatemala where she had, was raising horses. She had left the movie business and and she hung up the phone. She said, I won't talk to you. She wouldn't. And Marina, she was in Asia somewhere, but I couldn't find her. And I, so I couldn't reach her as well. So I went back to Donna Gigliani and she said, I can't go, go public on this, but I knew the two names. So in my last interview with Harvey Weinstein in 2002, I said, Harvey, tell me what happened at the 1998 Venice Film Festival with with Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins. And he got all agitated and he said, what are you doing, what are you you doing? I said, Harvey, I wanna know, did you attempt to rape Rowena Chu at that? Harvey at that point stood up, we were in a small conference room, just the two of us, he said, My last interview, I'd done about 12 hours of interviews, but I watched him for months and, and reported the story for months. He stood up and stood over me and he clenched his fists and his lip was trembling. And he says, If you run that story, uh, it will destroy my marriage to Eve and, and my three young teenage daughters. Their lives will be uh, you know, really wrecked in many ways. And I'm sitting down and he's standing up and I'm saying, my God, I can't continue to sit down. He'll take a poke at me, I'm a, I'm a sitting duck. So I stood up and I faced him, roughly the same height. He was about a hundred pounds more than me. But as I faced him, as I stood up, suddenly, what did Harvey do? He started to cry. And I don't mean a tear rolling down his cheek. I mean wailing. Oh, it's gonna destroy my life. It's terrible, he can't do that. And so I am thinking, is this just a bully who when confronted backs down and, 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 and caves, is this a guy who was really terrified for the first time that he would be exposed in a story. So what happened then, he didn't know whether we're going to run that story or not. And he thought we might. And David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker said, Ken, I don't know how we can run the story. We don't have any women." It's just conjectural. We don't have any woman who's come out and says he did this to me or he attempted to do this to me, and and if we do that, we're like the National Enquirer. We can't do it. I agreed with them. We couldn't run the story unless we had women on the record, and they wouldn't go on the record. So, the story didn't run in two thousand two because of that.
0: Uh, there, there's a there's an interesting uh, part in this in the story where you say you write that if you had written the story, then you. Uh, likely would have said that he he raped these women or raped ra- Ro- Rowena. Rowena um and that that would have been wrong i mean knowing yeah. is I learned from interviewing her in, in more recently for the book that she was not raped and i i mean i just i feel like it's a uh, there's a lot of talk everybody talks about media ethics but i do think this is a very important example of the, the difficult balancing act you have to do as a reporter I mean I you don't want to be wrong you also don't want to miss the story um, and it's 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 just it really is I, I cannot recommend this book enough for if you were an aspiring journalist or if you're just interested in how journalism works that that whole section is really uh, great and worth reading. Um, the story does eventually come to the New Yorker though uh, Ronan Farrow is working at NBC he's working on a big story about Harvey Weinstein he has people Uh, who will go on the record and some who will, you know, only speak kind of on background or or, you know, hidden on camera. Um, And NBC kills it. You know, part this is the Harvey Weinstein uh, protection machine at work. Um, You talk to him. How did you uh, help bring his his blockbuster reporting to The New Yorker? Well, what happened was, uh, I didn't know Ronan Farrow, and he called me in the spring of
1: 2017. This is eight months before Harvey was exposed in, in the fall of 2017. He called me, said he's doing a story, he told me what he was reporting on. I, you know, I only knew him because he was Woody Allen's son, and he had gotten involved in defending his sister, who claimed that Woody Allen, her father, had abused her sexually. I was a little wary because I, I, saying is, is Ronan Farrow a journalist or is he a zealot and and is he and he convinced me in that conversation by the kind of questions he was asking that he was acting like a journal a careful journalist so he asked me if he could have access to my papers which were on file at the New York Public Library and I gave him access to them on the Harvey Weinstein uh, reporting I did in 2002 he then called me up. In, in later in the spring and said, can I interview you for, I'm doing a piece for NBC on Harvey on Weinstein. I said, sure, but yeah, ha- I'm doing a book. So you have to come out and visit me. Um, I'm Bridge Hampton um, to, to do the interview. Um, he came out and we spent about four hours together. And one of the things, at some point I said to him, so what have you got? And he said to me, well, I've got three women on tape by name saying that Harvey sexually abused them. I've got five women on tape, but shielded, camouflaged. Their name's not revealed. Their face is not revealed, saying that Harvey sexually abused them. And I've got an audio tape of the Italian model who, who claimed that Harvey grabbed her breasts in 2015 and the police wired her, and he, igno- he confessed uh, wh- when he met her that, in fact, he had done that. I said, "My God, you've broken the case. What's the next step?" He said, "Well, I'm, I I meet with the president of NBC News, No oppenheim on August 8th I said, "Great." I didn't hear from him August eighth. On August 9th I called Ronan. I said, "So how'd you do?" And he sounded depressed. He said, "Well, they, they killed the story. They killed me. I'm I'm off." the case at NBC. They said, I could take it elsewhere, but who would who would want it? He didn't ask that as a question. It was just a statement he was making. I said, Ronan, give me your number. I'll call you back. And I, I took his number down. I called David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and I said, David, I think this guy Ronan Farris broke the case that we couldn't break 15 years ago. And and he's, judicious was the word I used I said, he sounds very judicious to me He said, I have him call me on Monday morning This was, he was closing an issue at, at that point So Ronald called him and the, ne- the next is history I mean, he, he he got the goods over the next seven, eight weeks and, and published a story NBC came to me A very senior executive who I promise not to name And I don't in the book But I tell the story of what the executive said. He said, Ronan didn't have the goods at NBC. He only got the goods after he went to New Yorker. And that's what they claimed to the press at the time about Ronan. So NBC says this, Ronan says that. I said, there's actually a way to adjudicate who's telling the truth. Let's go to the New Yorker editor who edited the piece and say, what did she, what did what did she learn? What did he actually bring to The New Yorker when he came to them in August of 2017? And she said the following to me, both in verbal form and then in an email. He had three women on... He had three women, he had five women camouflage, and he had the audio tape. He had all of that. So NBC is not telling the truth.
0: Yeah. Period. And, and uh, again, getting back to the web of influence here, uh, I believe Oppenheim had a... Deal with Weinstein for a script was that right? No, he did. The, there are five theories as
1: to what would explain why NBC would kill Ronan Farrow's story. I don't know whether any of them are true or or, but th- this the conjecture. One is that Noah Oppenheim is a screenwriter. He's had two screenplays, but and if he's ambitious to be a screenwriter, Harvey, powerful studio executive, you want to stand right. with good graces. Right. That's one theory. Second theory is that his boss. Chairman of NBC News Andy Lack was a so- he and his wife were social friends of Harvey's. That's a, that's the second theory. A third theory is Steve Burke, the, the head of the CEO of NBC Studio Head Universal, does business all the time with Miramax and studios work together all the time. A fourth theory is that Brian Roberts, the the head of the parent company Comcast that owns NBC, uh, was a social friend of Harvey's for many years. In fact, when Harvey used to go with his first wife to Martha's Vineyard, uh, Roberts was considered what Harvey called his part of his Martha's Vineyard Mafia. The fifth theory is that Harvey had had information on Matt Lauer, which had not yet come out, about his sexual behavior, and that if if you don't run the story on me, I won't spread the story on Matt Lauer. Any of them true? I don't know. I You know, I, you, it's one of those stories you can't quite penetrate what the reasons are what you yeah. can penetrate is that they killed
0: a really good story much of their embarrassment yeah yeah i mean I, I i i remember when that story broke i was like oh they finally they finally have it uh that's that's this is great what did you, uh, as you were sitting? I mean, the 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 back third of this book or so is a, almost a day by day recounting of the trial, um, which was incredibly use, useful to me because I uh, had kind of paid attention to the headlines but had not, you know, actually uh, sat there and 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 read the news reports every day, day by day, as as this the story was breaking. As you were sitting there in the courtroom, did you? Uh, get the sense that uh harvey was cooked did you think he could get out of this i mean i as a as a witness and uh you know uh a a regular viewer of it what was your uh, sense in the courtroom uh,
1: my sense in the courtroom was that the case uh, that the prosecution had a stronger case than than harvey had in his defense but the weakness of the prosecution case and they tried to to build around this was several of these women despite the fact that Harvey raped them continued to keep in touch with them and not only keep in touch with them sometimes have consensual sex with them after the alleged rapes and in some cases had me email exchanged with them I miss you big guy was one of the statements made etc and the prosecution had to overcome the sense that the jury might have that these women were ambitious young women who were who were seeking to further their career and had sex with Harvey willingly uh, in order to further their career. And that, that was the obstacle that the defense had to, had to overcome. And one of the ways they did it was by constantly harping on this, this problem, but also by inviting Dr. Barbara Ziv of Temple University to appear as a rape expert. And one of the things she said to the jury, which was quite stunning, is that 40% of rape victims keep in touch with the rapist afterwards. So women keep in touch and why? And what the prosecution did was try to answer that why question. Women keep in touch goes in denial. It really didn't happen to me. Or, or they or they, say, I'm at fault. Harvey's not at fault. I'm, I'm really at fault. Or they say, I'm afraid. I don't wanna go against this guy, he's too powerful. That's among many multiple reasons that women have for why they would keep quiet and, and, and not come forward. And I think the prosecution successfully convinced the jury that it was not the overriding issue. The overriding issue was Harvey abused these women. And, and, and you would sit there every day, as I did, and watch Harvey. Sometimes, as the women were giving this poignant testimony, he would fall asleep. I mean it was really quite extraordinary. And and you say to yourself, is it is there's some, something physically wrong with Harvey, which there was, by the way. Or is it that he's he has so so little empathy that he can't even relate to the pain these women are expressing on the witness stand?
0: The jury did, and they found yeah. him guilty. How much uh, how much of this uh, I I I'm curious from your perspective, as somebody who reported this out in two thousand two, who who watches the trial in in uh, in recent years, and has now written this book, how much has the culture shifted on understanding of uh, rape victims and how uh, how how to treat the aggressors in these cases?
1: Well, I don't know whether we've had a permanent, long term change in in terms of uh, misbehave behavior on the part of males. Um, and, and rape, you know, sexual harassers, et cetera. There's no question that that men are more self-aware of the dangers of misbehavior. And, and so you see any number of executives you talk to say they will not meet with a woman alone in their office. If they do, the door is always going to be open uh, because they don't want to be accused of, of somehow mistreating that person. So is that a long-term change? I don't know. And by the way, if it is a long-term change, there are problems with that. Because one of the values of hiring young people is that they can talk to you and be mentored by you. And the mentoring function with with people not only not being in the office because of COVID, but also because men are so self-conscious as to not appear to be harassing or abusing women, that there's less mentoring going on. So that that's a one that's a negative oh, uh, against the overall positive of, of the consciousness being raised by by yeah. men. How permanent that is, I don't know.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a figure in this uh, in this whole story who we haven't talked about at all yet, uh, and that's and that person is Bob Weinstein. Okay, you know, Bob Weinstein is a he's an interesting <laughs> figure. You 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 track their their rise together in the early years in Buffalo and uh, and then then Manhattan. Um, you know he he is the guy. He personally signs the checks for for Chew and Perkins, right? He uh, he he tells you that his brother claimed he was b- being blackmailed, um, and he comes across as relatively contrite in your book, also angry. I mean, he's like there's this wonderful little anecdote at the end where Harvey asks him to pay you know three and a half million dollars for the rights to Dogma, which a movie I enjoy. I like that movie, but is in there's no universe in which that movie's worth. Three and a half million dollars to you know sell on DVD and Blu Ray uh, anymore. Um, what is your what's your sense of Bob Weinstein and what he knew and when he knew it and and how he has actually responded to the the all of the revelations and and everything else? Bob w- was called Bobby.
1: He was two years younger than than Harvey, and they shared a room in Queens, Fletch and Queens, and he was he was Harvey's co head uh, of Miramax. They were equal partners. Uh, and and, had, and Bob brought his talents as well uh, to to Miramax. But he he was the junior par- partner, the junior brother, the younger brother. And when Harvey came to him in 1998, and he said, Rowena Chu, I was having an affair with this woman, Rowena Chu. And she threatened to, if I broke up with her, to tell Go public and tell my wife and expose my wife and kids to this, Bob. I need your help. Bob then wrote the two non-disclosure checks, totally almost five hundred million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars for both women, so two fifty each, roughly. Um, when I asked Bob uh, then and subsequently, um, how do you? Wh- why did you lay out that money? What did you know? He said, Harvey told me he was being blackmailed. I was helping my brother out. And and I said, "Did you not know, not know he was raping women?" And he said, "I had no idea he was raping. I knew my brother was a sex addict, and at one point, I got him in, helped get him into a treatment program after he was exposed in the fall of 2017." Bob became, I found in the reporting for this book, a different person. He was he he was an alcoholic at some point, and he went into treatment and became a true believer in in, in the ethos of therapy, talking it out, confronting your demons, et cetera, and and tried to persuade his brother to do something similar and failed. And in the end, he set up a a program for Harvey to go to in Arizona after he was exposed in the fall of 17. And and Harvey, instead of entering the program and and participating with the other people and, and cleansing yourself, being contrite, you know, showing, you know, that you really want to learn something. Harvey stayed in a hotel, didn't stay in the cottages where the other residents stayed. And A and at the diners was on his telephone all the time and basically left the program early. Bob stopped speaking to his brother and hasn't spoken to him since that period of time um, and is angry. And but he insists that he had no idea that Harvey was, was abusive and welcomes the fact that the jury found him guilty of
0: it and believes that they properly found him guilty of it. But he said he didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of these things where it's hard to imagine (laughs) not knowing, but at the same time, you know, everyone it's, it's really interesting to look back at some of the jokes that were made by Seth MacFarlane, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, right. Uh, You know, the, the, Um, the great Peter Piskin book on the, the Sundance, uh, the rise of Sundance. And there's, there are stories about Harvey Weinstein being crazy and violent there, but, you know, at the same time, nobody really thought, I think that, you know, actual violent rapes were occurring on a fairly regular basis. It's, it's crazy. In the
1: 2002 profile I wrote of Harvey for the New Yorker, which he hated, by the way, I, 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 Reported chapter and verse of his violent temper, his abuse of people verbally and even sometimes physically. I didn't, I, I couldn't report the sexual stuff because I couldn't get any woman to to confirm that it happened. But I portrayed him as a monster. He was short of the sexual monster. He, he also was. But now it's out, and and it's out because of the great reporting that, the two times reporters and Ron Farrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was everything I wanted to ask. I always like to close these interviews uh, by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if you think there's anything people should know about uh, Harvey Weinstein, about your book, about uh, you know the, the state of the world in general. What do, what do you think folks should know?
1: Well, I, one of the things, uh, among the things I found that I didn't know in, in when I set out to do a biography of Harvey Weinstein, I didn't know much about his childhood and what happened in his home. Did some things happen in his home that helped shape the person he became. One of the things I learned is that his mother, Miriam, yelled all the time, Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, stop doing it. Harvey. So much show the yelling that the kids played poker on weekends at different friends' homes. They refused to play at Harvey's home because his mother yelled all the time. But you can see when you look at Harvey, the way he yelled in, the, in his office, at Miramax and, and the Weinstein Company after that. Clearly a pattern was formed of yelling that the mother had established. Doesn't explain his sexual behavior. You you can't attribute that to to yelling in the in the mother. But one of the things you can attribute it to, and I found this out too, I found no evidence that Harvey abused women in junior high school or high school, or in the early years, the first three years at the University of Buffalo where he attended. After he dropped out of after his junior year at Buffalo, and stayed in Buffalo and became a very successful rock promoter, bringing to Buffalo Sinatra, Rolling Stones, Billy Joel, et cetera, et cetera. He's really making a lot of money, but he had real power. And only when he had power do we see him starting to abuse women. So power, I, I, I concluded, became a kind of aphrodisiac for him. And I'm sure that's true of a lot of men who abuse women the power goes to the head and they think they can get away with it and when a woman gives them a compliment they misinterpret that as a come on
0: do you think that the the actual world here of music of touring you know i mean the the world of of concerts in the 1970s is is fairly decadent as anybody who is you know who who has read any of the books from that time will 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 tell you or seen any of the movies. I mean, do you think that that might have had played some role in letting him believe that he was owed or deserved these uh, sexual favors?
1: Well, he did at one point, Harvey did claim that, that the period of the seventies, open love, open, you know, people, you know, sexual mores being a little different than they had been that helped, persuade him to act a certain way, naturally, because he thought it was normal. But one of the things you see in, in looking closely at Harvey's life, he was constantly trying to normalize aberrant behavior. For instance, he would he would stay in hotel suites when he traveled to another city. He would go out to dinner, his assistant would wait for him in the hotel suite. He'd come home to the hotel suite and shed all his clothes and walk around naked thinking, and, and his assistants like Zelda Perkins said to me, Harvey, what are you doing? What? Put on your clothes. Why do you walk around? He said, "Oh, come on. You know, don't be a square. This is this is normal." And you know, he normalized sexual behavior as well as aberrant behavior like taking off your clothes. I mean, it's quite a. His "come on" line to women always. I have it throughout the book. I have a kink in my neck. Can you give me a massage? You know, it wasn't like you're gorgeous, or it wasn't the usual Don Juan kind of come on. It was it was kind of a feeble. I have a kink in my neck, will you give me a massage? And then he would say,
0: if if they did, take off your shirt. I want to I want to give you a massage. You know, it was just kind of yeah. I mean it, it really okay. I mean it's it's like a freshman in college yeah. you know it's I uh well thank you very much again for being on the show uh, Mr. Aletta the book again Hollywood ending Harvey Weinstein and the culture of silence uh I will link to it in the in the newsletter with this podcast make sure you pick it up um it is a really fascinating uh uh look at I mean I beyond the trial beyond beyond that just the rise of Harvey Weinstein and 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 all that Really great, must, rate, must read, must recommend. Um, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm a culture editor at The Bulwark and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then.